Welcome to the Dieter Melhorn Fishing Podcast. Whether you like to fish, enjoy talking about fishing, or just enjoy the fishing lifestyle, this is the podcast for you. So go grab yourself a cold drink or a hot cup of coffee, sit back, start tying up some fishing rigs, and enjoy the show. Well, hello folks, and welcome to the Dieter and Melhorn Fishing Podcast. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, I appreciate you checking it out. Now, some of you folks are watching this podcast. I am now doing these podcasts as a video podcast, and I am streaming them on my fishing channel on YouTube, Dieter Melhorn Fishing. So, if you want to listen to it, you can go to a traditional podcast platform, uh, like most of you have been doing, but you can also watch it on YouTube. So, uh, something a little different I'm trying. People have been very receptive to it so far. And I'm pretty excited about it uh, on the attention that it's getting to people that are watching. So I appreciate you checking it out. All the regular listeners to the podcast, thank you for listening. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for sticking with me. I kind of took a little hiatus there at the beginning of the year to get some stuff straightened out. Juggling everything that's going on in the uh, my, my TV world, my YouTube world, my guide trip business world, and uh, and kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do with the podcast. And this hit me. I'm going to give it a shot. Uh, I just came back from Catapalooza. If you don't know what Catapalooza is, the Catapalooza Fishing Expo uh, was in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee this past weekend. First ever event. Amazing, amazing facility that they're having this thing out. A beautiful, beautiful place. If you've never been to Pigeon Forge, it's almost like a little um, Disney World, Las Vegas, whatever you want to call it, for families. A lot more family-oriented. A lot to do there. A beautiful facility where they had it. And uh, they're going to be having it next year in 2022, the second week of June. I'll be bringing you more information on that as we get closer. That's still a good ways out. But um, got to interview some people. One of those people I'm having as a guest on today's podcast. So uh, hang around. We'll get to that in a minute. But I interviewed like five or six different people out there. Uh, which was really cool. Um, it was a great opportunity to sit some of these people down and talk to them. And really what I'm trying to do on these podcasts is um, just kind of really just open these people up as to who they are, where they came from, what they do. Uh, so many of the interviews we see with fishermen and uh, especially people in the catfish world where I come from uh, is kind of more about how you fish, what do you fish with, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's cool. There's plenty of people to do that. I'm trying to do something a little different and uh, just kind of give you a chance to get to know some of these people. So uh, I got a cool one that's from outside of the catfish community, uh, more of a striper musky fisherman over on the Tennessee River, though, and the Tennessee River is common ground to a lot of us, and in this podcast, we're going to talk about... Um, that whole river system and all those lakes. And it's Billy Davis, Melton Hill Bill, as some of you may know him from Facebook and online. He is a guide. He's from over in Powell, Tennessee. And uh, he's been guiding out there for a long time, catches some monster stripers and some monster muskie. And uh, I think you'll find him interesting. He's an interesting guy. I've known about him and kind of loosely known who he was for a long time. And I finally got to meet him out there. He was gracious enough to come sit down with me for about an hour and taped his podcast, uh, I think, after he'd been on the boat fishing that morning. So um, 
Uh, his website is MeltonHillBill.com. You can go check him out if you're interested in booking a trip. If you're out there in eastern Tennessee around Knoxville in that area, he fishes a lot of those different lakes out there and uh, just covers a lot of that different water. And, uh, yeah, go check him out. It's the Melton Hill, Melton Hill Bill Fishing Guide Service. But, yeah, MeltonHillBill.com. You can check him out. And uh, uh, good guy. Fishes a lot. He's uh, one of the few ones that is 100% catch and release. You heard that right, folks. That's one of the things that attracted me to doing an interview with him. Um, he's 100% catch and release on his striper and his busky. And uh, I find that very, very commendable. Uh, kind of like I do with my guide service. I release fish over 10 pounds. He's even more hardcore. Uh, he's 100% catch and release. So I think it's really cool, especially on a trophy fishery like he has to fish out there. So uh, uh, hats off to him for what he does out there, but I sit down with him. I think it's a pretty interesting podcast. I think you're going to like it. And, uh, like I said, if you're listening to the podcast, you can always go watch this podcast. Just go to my website, Dieter Melhorn Fishing. There's a link to my YouTube channel on there where you can go, uh, check it out and, uh, find it. And, uh, if you're a person who is watching it just on YouTube and you're in the podcast, Dieter Melhorn Fishing is the podcast that you can check out. There's a link to it on DieterMelhornFishing.com. So if you get there, you can get in any direction you need to go. But for now, let's sit down with Captain Billy Davis and have a little chat. Your early childhood growing up, you grew up in eastern Tennessee. What were your early childhood fishing experiences like? Well, I guess the one of the youngest, uh, the ones that I remember when I was really young was, you know, when I, my dad, I guess, took me walleye fishing one time up uh, on Norris Lake, Lewiston Sea area, and we were jigging walleyes and ended up hooking onto a 43-pound striper, the biggest fish I'd ever seen. And I, I, it just captivated me. And, you know, I always had that in the back of my head that, you know, I'd love to catch those, but you can't do that from a bank. Yeah. So, and then, you know, about that time, we would sneak out and we'd fish a lot of the farm ponds around the house. And uh, there, was, there was this one pond where this guy had supposedly, supposedly had stocked some really nice bass. And, you know, we started catching them and he got wind of us fishing there and he would come out with a shotgun, you know, shooting that <laughs> shotgun saying, get the heck out of here. But then we realized, you know, we would start sneaking in at night and, uh, and getting up super early. And, and we'd come to realize that, hey, we can catch these fish a lot easier early in the morning and then late at night. So I kind of, uh, I think that's resonated with me, you know, even, you know, into adulthood that, man, you gotta get out there super early or super late because hey, those fish will just go down in the middle of the day. And I figured that out at 10 years old. So that's pretty neat to, yeah. to kind of pattern that out. And, you know, we go from there and I had an uncle that would take me bass fishing on Fort Loudon Lake. And, uh, you know, we'd sit there and catch a few bass, but off in the distance. You could see fish exploding and stuff like that. And I was like, what is that? Well, they were white bass and skipjacks. I said, well, that's pretty cool. So we uh, started targeting those things. Little Zara puppies, man, just go through there. It's boom, 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 catching these little white bass. You know, they're two or three pound white bass and skipjacks and all that. And then I transitioned that over to Melton Hill Lake one day. And I was, you know, I was probably 16 years old, just starting to drive and, you know, I was, the, the topwater bite was really cool. So I went, uh, one day I was just walking the bank around, uh, I guess the, I guess what's the name, Oak Ridge Park or whatever the, where the rowing course is. Mm -hmm. And uh, throwing my little 
Zara puppy trying to catch white bass and I hooked onto a fish and it spooled me I, and, I, and I knew what it was, but that, then that right, that was the moment that I said, I think I'm on to something. That so, was your like Yeah, that was epiphany. my epiphany. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, that's what I want to do. It took every bit of my line on my 12 pound test. And so, yeah, it's good stuff. When, I mean, growing up in Eastern Tennessee, it's not like you packed up and moved anywhere else. Um, when did you realize you were, I mean, you're living in the promised land of fishing. I mean, there is, by accident or planning, there's a lot of stuff done right uh, on the yeah. Tennessee River where it flows yeah. through here. Well, uh, I guess you've heard of Bull Runstein plant. I live probably, grew up 10 minutes from there, so I'd always hear the stories from all the locals about, oh, world record stripers, and this was, you know, I was growing up in the 80s and early 90s, that Bull Run Steam Land had produced several, I, I guess at one time, the world record 55-pound striper came from there, and then it was, you know, 63, and then, of course, now it's 65, and, you know, kind of went back and forth with Cordell Hull. And uh, I was like, man, I live right near this. I need to figure out what's going on and how they're doing it. And there's a you know, steam plant fishing in the, that in the winter time. So I just kind of, I fished it, never caught any giants like that, but you know, we hooked up on several, you know, 40 to 50 pound fish and got spooled a couple of times and said, I need to step my game up. So, you know, I've, uh, I guess, uh, you know, I was a poor college kid at the time too, kind of whenever I uh, really got into it, but I went broke. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell yeah. me about you, you, yeah. you, you, tell me about college here. What did what was your plan here? Uh, yeah, that's good. Uh, you know, what was that plan going out of high school? Did you have any dream of going oh, yeah. at that point? Nope. Okay. No dreams at all. What was your plan so at that point? My plan, well, I guess going into high school, you know, I, I I was a pretty good soccer player growing up, but up until about sixth grade and you know living in the hills of east tennessee we rode our bikes everywhere we'd ride our bikes fishing well i developed really strong leg and you know i played soccer and i always kick the ball over the goal so i was like i think i'm in the wrong sport so i went to play football and i played football all through high school and ended up being a two-time all-state kicker and a punter so that took me to the university of tennessee to where you know i thought i was going to be a uh, professional football player and then quickly realized when I got to college, I was like, ah, maybe not. <laughs> I'm going to have to do something else. But I had an uncle who's a petroleum geologist down in Louisiana, multimillionaire. And I was like, ah, maybe I should do that. So I got the degree in geology and I was going to be a, a, a professional, you know, uh, uh, I was going to be a, uh, I guess a petroleum geologist down in Louisiana or Texas would be a multimillionaire. Up and until that's all this fracking and horizontal yeah, drilling. Oh, yeah. And oh yeah, 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 yeah. Horizontal drilling wasn't even around then, but yeah. uh, I don't even know what fracking was either, but it was, it was a lot of money. Yeah. And I was going to be a professional geologist up until my junior year. Uh, I had a kid, and my son was born. Right turn in life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His mama was not going to move to Texas or Louisiana. She was stuck yeah. here at Knox. She's staying in Knoxville. And I was, I stayed, you know, ended up getting a job at this uh, environmental consulting business in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. You know, as a, you know, straight out of college, young kid, didn't know what I was going to do, but I, I ended up working in this uh, for this company that did groundwater remediation. We did drilled wells, and you know, and I got to learn about all these remediation systems, all these pumps and water flow and stuff like this. 
but I drove by the boron steam plant every single day. And you heard it call your name. Oh yeah, no, 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 there's a bridge. I don't know if you've ever seen <laughs> the Edgemore Road that runs by the Bullrun steam plant. It's pretty backed up traffic. So there's, there'd be some days I'd be sitting on that bridge, looking down, seeing strappers busting top water. There was, and I would, I was miserable. I was sitting there at work thinking, man, I should be out there catching those fish. So basically I would, uh, I would just start carrying my fishing stuff to work with me, go hit the steam plant, uh, you know, catch a few fish and then go on into work, maybe 20, 30 minutes late, but, and then I'd rush to get back out. And, you know, I just, and I developed a pattern, you know, so it was one of them deals where I was catching fish in that steam plant at times where there shouldn't be any fish there at that steam plant. And I kind of, and then I owned, honed in on it. And I was like, it's, it's not a time of the year where these fish are there. It's the environment. It's all based on how much flow's coming out of Norris Dam. You had to have X many hours of flow, which is like 15 hours for that cold water to make it to that steam plant. But when that's, you know, but if it made it in there and you had that right 60 to, to 70 degrees, those strappers would pile up in there in August, in July, you know? So I was out there catching fish when nobody else was even thinking about fishing that area, catching some giants. Now you went, Apparently, no dummy in school because that's not. I graduated. It, uh, D is for a diploma. That, that's not exactly <laughs> a. I mean, that's a very heavy science math yeah, oh, kind of thing. It is. Did it, any of that help you in the fishing yeah. world when it comes to yeah, the, data the, and numbers? Yeah, the degree in geology, you know, I, was an emphasis on environmental geology and, you know, I took a lot of biology classes and stuff like that. But I, quit, I realized that they, only, they need three things, you know, food cold temperature and I don't know, food. Yeah, I shouldn't even said that, but uh, I know they need food and cold water. That's what they really, and flow. So what I've realized is that steam plant was a fish grinder. It's not necessarily bringing the bait in there, but it's always grinding up fish, you know? So that, that spits out food. Even if there's no bait in there, those strappers would be in there. If there's no skipjacks or not, and they're just sitting there. And, uh, <clears throat> but it had to be the right temperature. Once they hit 72 to 70, <clears throat> 73 degrees, they leave. They don't like it. But if you could hit it just right, yeah, there's fish in there any time of the year. So, but then I quickly realized, man, these fish don't leave the lake. They go somewhere. They're always somewhere. So I think that was my, you know, determining drive is, like, man, I've got to figure these things out. So, you know, I started out going all over the place looking for strappers yeah. and that's what I was always find. I was always looking for that sweet spot that environment now you're saying you know, all over you're talking Tennessee River lakes and stuff around yeah here. all all of them because you know what I've realized is they may stock strappers in Watts Bar but they're you know they run through the locks they can go anywhere so you know that's that's one thing I did was try to figure out anywhere that might have that perfect zone you know, that, that mid 60 degree water, 65 degree water. And that's, you'll probably find some fish around there. So. so you're sitting on the bridge, stuck in traffic. You're looking at the water. Yeah. Probably see a striper blow up on something. Oh yeah. At what point did you start to say, I want to be guiding. I okay. can, I can uh, make some money. Oh doing yeah, that. yeah. Well, there, there was a, uh, and it, it actually wasn't the stripers that put me over the edge into guiding, it was the muskies. Mm -hmm. So. 
you know, I had I'd known there were several striper guides. I was in the uh, t the Tennessee Stripe Bass Association for a long time. I guess it, you know, I, I, I joined that thing probably about 2002 and was in there for probably seven or eight years. And, and there was plenty of guides and, you know, I looked up to all those guys and I, I just always wanted to do something different, you know. So fast forward to about 2003, you know, they started stocking muskies in 98. So about 2003, we started fishing that steam plant in the wintertime, something changed. We weren't catching stripers anymore. The muskies moved in, ran the stripers out. And uh, so I was one of the first guys to go in there and say, I'm gonna catch muskies. So we did, we caught a lot of good muskies. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, we, had a, we actually had a muskie club. It was the volunteer muskie hunters. So we had a little group that met down at Gander Mountain, this bunch of old guys. It sounds like a Civil War group or something. <laughs> yeah, it, 2005, 2006, 2007. And with a bunch of older musky guys, that you, most of them are from Wisconsin and stuff like that. And they, uh, you know, and this was about the time the internet was really taking off. And I said, guys, we've got to have a website for the musky club. And you know what they said? Nah, we don't need no website. So what I did, I took the initiative and made tnmuskies.org. I made my own website, had a discussion forum on there. And, uh, you know, it was pretty neat. How all this, uh, they had a message board and everything. So we'd get on there and show all these pictures and stuff. And then uh, guys would call, you know, be like, hey, who's the local muskie guide? There wasn't one. Yeah. And I was like, I'll, be, I'll take you out muskie fishing. So took people out, put people on muskies. Next thing you know, I'm getting paid to fish. I was like, man, this is awesome. Out of a 16-foot jet boat, you know, just a low jet boat, the 60-40 jet on it, barely going plane. But I would go anywhere, you know. That was the, one of the things I liked to do was go where nobody else would, so I ran jet drive everywhere. And I'd just beat the fire out of these jets, take them anywhere I could and to get away from people, so. You talked about the forum. Uh, I was in a bunch of the catfish ones, catfish one back in the day. Um, technology's great. Technology's uh, wonderful. Oh, technology's yeah. a double yeah, edged sword. Until, until, yeah. What have you seen happen with technology, the good and the bad, when it comes to fishing? Well, just carelessness. You know, some people don't care to, to blow up a spot. But, you know, there's people, like I said, myself, I learned Photoshop, you know. I, I use technology to my advantage, too. I mean, these days you can't just rely on word of mouth, hey, go fishing. But you've got to put content out there. You have to post pictures. You have to, and, you know, I think that's part of it. Just you, You're only going to get out of it what you put into it. And, you know, I have to prove that, yeah, I'm, I'm catching fish. I mean, I'm booked solid for a couple of months out, but I still feel like I have to do that. But... I try to be smart about things, you know. I do a lot of release photos and, you know, very few videos and, but, uh, you know, the, the main thing is you just don't want to give up your spots. Are those spots more important in, you know, those those tight geographic areas? Is that more important in musky fishing or striper fishing? Both. Yeah, they're both. I mean, and I'm after the biggest fish that swims. And, they, you know, I've, I've come to realize they inhabit certain areas. You know, they'll be, I think, the most preferred zones. The biggest fish are going to be there. You know, that's, that's, that's kind of what I've realized is, you know, you have a set of shoals and you'll have the, sometimes the biggest fish will, will sit on one and then the, the 
smaller ones will be further down the pecking order because they're going to get the scraps. So, you know, it's a, and it's not always 100% accurate, but I've been catching, you know, some of these pots that I've been fishing for 15 years, you can be like, hey, there's going to be a 42 to 44 pounder. And, you know, you catch one and that's what it is. So, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty neat how, how it works. And it's the same spots year after year after year that they use. Yeah, the thing I said here with the striper guys is it seems like there's different groups of them as far as the guides. There's the guides that are fishing the bulls at the dam. Mm -hmm. They're the guys that are, you know, doing stuff up the clinch. Yep. Where does all that fit in and how does all that so, shake out and who does what and why? Well, okay, I don't want to catch a fish. I want you to catch the fish. You know, I, I get some of my biggest thrills off here and people say it's the biggest fish I've ever caught, you know, and that's, and other guys want to, you know, catch, fill the cooler up. So, you know, I think it kind of goes back to my upbringing you know to i've seen 50 60 pounders you know i've seen them break me off at the side of the boat i've been up some of these shallow rivers and seen mid 60 pound fish swimming so i know the potential of what these things can go you know if returned so that's why i've ever since i've you know at a young age i've never really wanted to kill anything yeah just because i know how big they can get is that hard dealing with some clients that want to put them in the cooler or no, is that an understanding I, if on your you, boat? And I make people go to my website and if you read my website, it goes, it states 100% catch and release, mm -hmm. always have, always will. I don't really, you know, I want them all swimming, you know, I'm kind of selfish. I, I get paid to catch fish, but I've seen fisheries go down the toilet. Why are there seven North Carolina guides here? Because their fisheries have gone down the toilet yeah so what does tennessee do right what does tennessee <laughs> this didn't just happen out here did nope. it no. no i think it, it comes it, there's several things that come i think you know it's going to sound corny but the geology you know the way the dams are set up tva sets up these dams you have you know your norris and your douglas and your cherokees are 100 feet deep 200 feet deep on and you know the water that comes out of that it's cold it's going to be cold year round that's why um, the Clinch River is going to—it's it's always going to sustain 50-degree temps. I mean, you're you're hardly ever going to, and especially up at North Dam, they they pump it so much that they maintain the trout fishery. Well, that maintains cool water year-round, so those fish always have a thermal refuge. They uh, always have somewhere to go, and there's there's like you know thermal refuges all over the place. Another thing, you know, we have springs all over the place. And, <clears throat> That's why you have big fish in areas that you don't think should have big fish because they have big springs. Yeah, but I think if the wrong people find out about those springs, they can be outfished. You know, they can fish them out. And I think that happens in a yeah. lot of places. For people that don't get it, no, there's going to be, I get a lot of people, different fishing levels listening to this. A lot of people will see what goes on in the Carolinas, North Carolina, South Carolina with the lakes, Murray, Norman fish die-offs, fish dying in these, they're relatively deep, not yeah. as deep as these out here. Yeah. What is the difference between like those lakes that are big and deep and what goes on out here on the Tennessee River? You, you, gotta, well, you have to have dissolved oxygen. You have to have the thermocline and it all has to line up correctly. And in certain years, if they pull, you know, water from the wrong, you know, the wrong time of the year, if say you have a, a, a thermocline zone of, you know, 
30 to 50 feet where the fish can live. Well, if they have to pull a lot of water, if they run a sluice gate or if they, if they take out too much water and it removes that environment, the fish are gonna die. You know, the, the big fish aren't gonna leave that cold water. And now if they suck the oxygen out, they'll suffocate. So, and I think that happened in, in Norris in 2003. All the, you had all the fish, you know, in a certain zone in the middle of the summer and they ran the sluice gates and that just sucks out that oxygenated layer and those fish, they perish. So yeah. I think that, and that, that happens uh, more often than not, say, or if you, you know, if you're down in Carolinas and, you know, all these fish are piled up into a big spring and you have a drought where it doesn't rain, and, you know, the, the spring dries up, you know, the fish going to perish. Yeah. So. Tell us about the life cycle of a striper and what it takes to get one from either being hatched to hatchery to that 30, 40 pounds. What, what kind of fish are we looking at there? What has it went through? How long has it lived? And how rare are they? All right, well, uh, let's see here. They, and depend, let's just use Watts Bar. And I think they, they try to put 200,000 fingerlings in a year. And one thing I heard from the stump that manages the hatchery is that they raise theirs up a little bit bigger than a lot of other people. They might raise them to two to two and a half inches. And they said the survivability of a fish like that is much higher than, you know, putting in the baby fry. So they put a little bit more effort into to raising them up. But, you know, to, and I don't know exactly, but I would, I, I usually tell people a 30 pound striper is about 12, 13 years old, I would believe. And, you know, it takes, I don't know how many fish they actually have to stock to get, but I'm sure it's quite a bit. So, you know, it's, and, and to see these fish, you know, 30, 35 pounds, and then, you know, you know, by the time they're 40, they're probably 16, 17 years old, maybe, and then the, the 50 pounders are, are 20, and then, you know, these 60s could be up to 30 years old. So, I, you know, they, it takes a long time, and, you know, that's why I tell people, I say, man, you know, do you really want to mount a 25 pounder? You know, do you, I don't, do you want to mount a 30 pounder? Because they have the opportunity in every reservoir here in Tennessee, they have the opportunity to get 50 pounds. Yeah. So. Can this be replicated, duplicated anywhere else? Or is it a Probably. magic combination? It, it, you have to have year round cool water. Once those fish hit 20 pounds, they need cool water with, you know, food in the area. And I don't know. I mean, I haven't looked too much into it, but I've really not, <laughs> I hope to never leave Tennessee. You know, that's, that's my plan is to, and that's why, you know, I do this guiding. I really don't want to leave, but I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure there are, a, you know, Arkansas's got some really good fish and it's kind of the same thing where they have, you know, and, and most of these reservoirs where you have the trophies, they're, they're the ones that aren't stocked. That's, you know, they go through the dam. So and that's how they, they find them. But I think a lot of it is, uh, less fishing, fishing pressure too, you know, yeah. there's, you know, and that, yeah. I think I came into it kind of at the right time and fished a lot of fish that had never been fished before before. And yeah, know, so. Speaking of fishing pressure, uh, you know, I come from the catfish world, it's growing in popularity. People, you know, it's relatively easy to get on a 15, 20 pound fish, you know, with oh, yeah. very little investment of, you know, money and, you know, yeah. you can get into them. A lot more people getting into it. Yep. A lot more people catching bait. Yep. Skipjack. Oh yeah. Is the skipjack population impacted? Have you seen it 
no. impacted. So what they've allowed to do, I guess, over the last 10 years, they've, they've allowed the weeds to grow. They've allowed the weeds to grow on Teleco, Watts Bar, Fort Loudon, and, and I think that has really spurred the, the population of skipjacks. They're uh, just about everywhere you go now, you can find them if you know what you're looking for. Because yeah. I hear some people talk, there's less skipjack, you can't catch them like you used to. Yeah. They're used to going to the steam plant, the dam, and loading up. Well, the steam plants, the steam plants are totally different now. You know, uh, back when your boy Obama got elected, he uh, he put all these mandates on them, where they can only raise the water at these steam plants up a certain a certain amount. So, say Kingston Steam Plant, for instance, it is actually fed by the Emory River. If you go to the Emory River, it is a free flowing. Uh, river that comes out of the the Cumberland Mountains in the plateau that water can be 35 degrees coming out of there well their permit states that they, they can only raise that 15 degrees they have a discharge permit where they're only allowed to raise it up so that brings that water up to 50 degrees well the clinch coming out of Melton Hill Dam 50 degrees so there's not even though they're cooking you know even though the steam plants running full bore it's not warming the water up so that's why people go to these steam plants be like oh they're not there anymore I mean, they can be, but it's not as, you know, it, it's not like people, you know. What can be done better? I mean, it, it seems like you're sitting in the perfect world over here, but I'm sure there's stuff that, you know, uh, that you see that can be done better. What are some things that come to mind? What well, is education, really? I mean, that's the main thing. You know, I can preach on blue in the face about catch and release, but, you know, it's up to, they're not going to change the limits on anything. They don't want... Our, our state DNR, TWRA, they don't want confrontation with anybody, so they're not going to change much of anything uh, unless they see a real problem and the biologist recommends it. But, you know, they want people to go out and, and catch fish and keep them. But, you know, like I said, I, I kind of, I was talking to a guy today, he was fishing the Clinch River and uh, he was filleting a striper up on the bank and, you know, I just kind of was joking around with him, said, but it tastes like mercury. But if, if you look up, there's a sign that says, don't eat the striped bass. I didn't put that sign up there, yeah. you know, and I think that's people don't see that. And then they just, you know, I tell people, I say, hey man, they built the atomic bomb right across the ridge. That's exactly right. And, and, and I've, I've made Facebook posts. You can drive up from Melton Hill Dam and go about a mile and you will see White Oak Lake. It is the most contaminated creek in the world. Yeah. There are radiation signs all over that place. And uh, that flows right into the clinch, you know. I, I talk about the Kingston ash spill, you know. I don't know if, if, if most people have never heard of it. Google the, the Kingston ash spill. I don't know how many billions of yards of toxic, you know, fly ash sludge pretty much blocked the Emory River. And, uh, you know, I think that's one thing that I was going to tell you about. That killed out probably 95% of the skipjack population oh, in Watts Bar. It's wow. taken 10 years for them to come back. That is crazy. So, yep. Yeah. All right, so you're a guide here. Yep. What, some people are gonna hear this, they wanna go fishing with this guy. Walk us through a day on one of your guide trips. All right, well, uh, you know, one part of, I think my success is that I use a skipjack herring. So first part of my trip is, hey, let's go catch skipjacks. And people love it. You know, I've kind of developed patterns to where I can be on any of five different reservoirs and be like, oh, they ought to be here. And, you know, it's what I look at is the water temps and flow and bam, there they are. So, you know, I've kind of, I was, I, mean, I ain't gonna brag, but I was one of the first to really go out and target skipjacks. You know, I don't, 
make videos about them or anything like that, but it's always been my biggest secret is yeah. biggest, freshest bait out there. Yeah. So, you know, and that's, uh, oh, that's been my, I guess, forte for, uh, <clears throat> for the longest time. So your time. clients get a little education before they get to catch fish. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, some of these skipjacks are, are, are bigger than some of these stripers these boys are catching in other states, <laughs> you know? So they're like, oh, this is a lot of fun. And they're fun. They're so much Tennessee fun. tarpon for yep. a reason. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, and then, you know, we might fish there. We might put it on the trailer and go somewhere else, yeah. you know? I think the key with some of these stripers is to, it, it you gotta get away from, you gotta find the fish that are away from the bait. You know, if you'll find them sitting up somewhere where there's not a whole lot of bait, they're quick to attack those things. Uh, certain times of the year, I have realized that, uh, you know, when these stripers set up to spawn, they don't want anything that's going to eat their eggs. What's going to eat their eggs more than anything is a crazy skipjack. So I have, uh, I've kind of got a pattern down, and that's what I call my trophy season, is, you know, we're after these, you know, fish that are attempting to spawn. They don't go through the spawn, but they, they attempt, but the eggs don't, eggs don't hatch. But it's like bass fishing on a bed, you know. You're going to put something out there that they really don't want around them. And I do things a little bit differently. I'll pull up on the bank. I've got talons on the back of my boat, and I won't sit there. I'll be sitting in two feet of water knowing those fish are 10 feet from us. And I just let them skip jacks, and they'll chase them out. I pull them back, chase them out, pull them back. And uh, that kind of, you know, that takes me, you know, I, I kind of started fishing that way from the bank, and that's what I realized, you know. I'm just banking. Yeah. What's a good day? What is a good day as far as catch a size? One that you go, where you hit that, as guides, we all have that threshold where we go from, ah, it wasn't bad to. Yeah, and, I, and I'm not bragging, we call those mountain hill bill days. So we, well, we've had days here in the last two weeks, 10 fish, two over 40. You know, we had, we had one day, we had 43 and a 46, you know, and, and five other fish, you know, in the mid thirties, so. Those days are getting a little fewer and far between, I think, with the other pressure, I, you know. And I hate to say it, there's a couple other guys that are now doing the exact same thing that I'm doing. So, you know, those fish here are seeing a lot more, you know, skipjacks on a balloon. So that's, that's that, that happens. But, uh, you know, that still pushes me to go try different stuff. And, you know, just because somebody sees me at one spot in the morning, doesn't mean I don't go somewhere else in the afternoon or, or midday or something like yeah. that. But yeah, we have some really good times. Is the fishery get too much pressure? I think so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's part of it. I have, I've had my pattern for 10, 15 years now. And, you know, there's others that have moved in and they all do kind of do the same thing in the same areas and stuff. So that does add pressure. But, uh, you know, there's it's a lot more guides than there used to be. See, Everybody used to be a guide on Norse and Cherokee. Yeah. And I was like, I don't want a guide in Norse and Cherokee. So me and Todd Asher, he was like, right, we're gonna do Melton Hill and some of this other stuff, some of these rivers around here. And, you know, we got a lot of crap. I got a lot of crap for guiding, you know, spots that are, you know, trophy spots. Oh, we shouldn't be guiding here because they're not technically stocked. And I get it, but I mean, I kill less fish than anybody else. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You, you got a no kill policy on your boat. That, yeah. I don't know what they got to. Yeah. Complain about, but yeah. that's the nature uh, of it. Yeah, as long as I'm not breaking any laws, I'm gonna, but I, I, I found a niche, you know, there's people that are tired of fishing Texoma. They, you know, they come out here and spend a week with me and 
catch a couple 40 pounders uh, you know it's I, I figured that niche out and it all comes down to being able to transport big bait keep it overnight and you know I got two questions. Sure. One, what was your best day on the water? Oh my goodness. Is there a day that stands uh, out as rare air? I ain't gonna get back to that one. Yeah, yet. okay, I, I'll tell you a story. There's this uh, this guy I know, Tim, he's a preacher. And, well, he's going through preacher school and he, he'd caught several nice fish with me and, and he's like, hey, I've got this uh, it's one fella that's going to preacher school with me. I want to treat him to a trip. I was like, okay. And he's like, well, I'm going to go ahead and tell you. He's a fly fisherman. He's, you know, he, he's never really uh, done anything like this. I said, oh, we'll be fine. So I get this guy on the boat, and this is probably early October, and he's a diehard fly fisherman. So I open up my bait tank, and there's nothing but 14-inch rainbow trout in there. <laughs> And his, his jaw dropped. <laughs> so we're fishing with this guy's pets. <laughs> and, and he asked me, he said, where'd you get these at? And I said, oh, the, the trout farm. He said, oh, okay, that's fine. I was like, no, they no, I'm count. not taking Yeah, they don't count. Like, oh, we don't care about stalkers. And I was like, okay, that's cool. So, you know, I'm kind of just going through the spiel. This guy's, you know, cool guy. And we get about 10 minutes into this trip. You know, we're pulling planter boards, and one goes off. And I said, oh, there's one. Go back here and grab it. And it took me probably two seconds to realize when that fish was 100 yards down river. I said, let me see that drag. And I pulled that drag, and it's tight drag. I was like, uh-oh. This guy has one of these fish on. And usually when I have clients that aren't too familiar with we're going to lose the fish. I think we've probably had several state record size fish on, but now since I'm guiding every day, I don't get to reel them in. You know, there's a difference between me reeling one in or somebody that's never done it before. But after, you know, this thing made a straight run upriver. You can always tell the big ones go upriver too. And uh, we got this fish in, 58 pounds. It's 49 and a half inches long. It was a legit. I was a holy blank in front of the preachers, and they didn't care. <laughs> so this guy caught his first striper 10 minutes into this trip, 58 pounds. And, you know, that was just like, it was amazing. I mean, it was when we got some, and the sun was just barely peeking through the, you know, we got some of those beautiful pictures of that fish. So that I'll never forget that. Yeah. You know, it's just one fish, and that's the only one fish we caught that day. Yeah. But, you know, that was pretty awesome. But, you know, I mean, I've had so many days where we, you know, catch 15, 35 pounders. And it's just my mind is a blur when, it, you know, just to think back, I'd have to look at the photos. Yeah. But. The other question is, and this isn't in fish numbers or not catching fish because that happens. What's your worst day on the water? It can be a lightning uh, storm. It can be the I drain hope, plug gone. I hope this guy's not going to watch this. <laughs> So we, and you know, this was, I don't know, probably six, seven years ago. Uh, this guy booked this trip and his buddy came along and uh, this guy gets in the boat and the first words out of his mouth is, I hate Southerners. I was like, oh God, does he not know where he's at? <laughs> and, it, and apparently this guy said, yeah, we're from Cincinnati. It's, it's a faster pace of life up there. And I'm thinking Cincinnati's not. You know, it's not Manhattan. <laughs> no, no. So this guy's like, yeah, yeah, we, uh, 
we, we just came from the Waffle House and it took us 45 minutes to get our sandwich. And I was like, I can see why. You know, they wanted, they probably back there spitting in this guy's, <laughs> this guy's sandwich and stuff. So he called me Cap. I mean, it's a, he, and he's some sales guy or something like that, real slick talking sales guy. And this guy was, you know, he'd be like, hey, Cap, and all this. And so we start to fish and we put these balloons out. You know, we caught our skipjacks, we're floating. And uh, we sit there about 30 minutes, nothing happens. And I was, you know, it's fishing. And he starts getting antsy. I was like, oh God, this guy's getting on my nerves. What time are they gonna start? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. oh yeah. yeah. So <clears throat> this guy was sitting there and he's like, <sighs> he starts, what about over there? What makes you, <laughs> and, he, and he, 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 he asked me, he's like, what makes you think they're right here? I'm try, trying to be a smart ass. What makes you think they're right here, right now? And I was like, yesterday. They were here yesterday. He's like, oh, okay. And, you know, we sit there about another 20, 30 minutes and nothing happens. And he started, I think we ought to go over there, Cap. What do you think, Cap? And I was like, I think we ought to go to the house. <laughs> I, and his buddy, you know, he's like, yeah, man, you're being an idiot. You're being, yeah. you know, blank. Shut up. So he's like, eh, Cap don't like me or something like that. Starts getting all wise guy and all this stuff. And then about that time, that balloon goes boom. And he catches this fish, 38 pounds. And I go from being the biggest dumb redneck out there to fishing Jesus. Yeah. So this guy was getting on the phone, calling all his buddies. Hey, man, look at this. And so it was one of them deals where I was like, man. I, I, and he called me like several times after that. I was like, oh, man, I'm sorry. I'm booked up. Just, but he just died, you know. And, and, but just doubted me for an hour, you know? I was like, man, just chill out. Just catch a fish, you know? Yeah. Just have fun. But yeah, he was so stressed about not catching a fish and he just kind of made for, you know? I was like, man, people just need to enjoy it. You know, I, I, I mean, I'm not bragging. I, I know what I'm doing. I play the same game every day. It's, it's up to the fish, you know? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I think that's it. You know, people have these high expectations. You know, they're paying good money to, to go out and fish, but yeah, I tell people, man, fishing's a bonus. If you're catching a fish, it's just a bonus. You know, I'm, one thing I'm not going to do is set the hook and hand you the rod. You know, I've I've heard horror stories of other guides that, you know, it's basically all about them. I said, no, it's going to be all about you. You know, but you might lose it. Yeah. The only thing I'm going to do is guide you. You know, I'm not fishing for you. So, yeah. but no, I, I've. Uh, What's your, we'll close it with this. What's your plan down the road? You just going to keep doing this as long as the good Lord keeps you fishing? My, okay, or? here's my plan. And I don't know, maybe I need a business partner. I'd like to do this till I'm 50 years old. And then maybe, you know, when I reach 50, I wouldn't mind to build boats. I've got an idea, you know. I've been in boats my whole life, and I just don't know anybody around here that builds a boat that, <laughs> you know. Does exactly what you want. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, without you know, without charging seventy, eighty thousand dollars. So, right. you know, we're actually uh, bought, we've bought a piece of property, and I've got to go ahead to build a a big barn, and I may build my own boat down the road and see how it goes. Is there a name for that boat? Not yet. I just wonder. Davis Craft. I don't know. Mountain Hill. Maybe I don't know. In there. I don't yeah. know. But that would be my my retirement plan. Yeah. Is to. It's fishing. And I get this question on guide trips: Is fishing still fun? Oh yeah. Do, do you still you still yeah. got the challenge of every mm -hmm. trip being different? Yep. Because now, you know, 
it's not that I want to be the best, but I want to be the best. I want people to say, hey, I'm glad I went with this guy. You know, I've, I've upped my rates a little bit, and, you know, I might charge a little bit more from somebody than other guides. But I also want to, you know, I want to see the, the fisheries be sustained, and you and you got to educate people. So I actually, in, you know, I enjoy putting people on fish, but I also enjoy teaching them about all, you know, all that this fish might have went through to get to 45 pounds and, hey, instead of throwing it on the wall we'll let it swim you know I offer canvas prints now I bought a large format printer where you know I'll I'll send people you know a life-size print if they want but let's let that fish swim you know and I think you know doing my part to hey you know maybe catch it again or you just want to sustain the fishery because I you know I've got a son who's 20 years old he may get into guiding he may not but definitely want the fish to be swimming there they can easily go away and I think that's why so many people come in or fish because the fisheries that they used to enjoy are now gone. So. Normally I ask people the last question is being a legacy what your legacy but it sounds like that is yeah. your legacy is that you just don't want these people to catch fish you actually want to educate them and yeah. make, or make them well, as I say better stewards of yeah, the resource. And, and, and you know I, I'm not a political person I don't like going to the meetings and you know, but I want to prove through all the fish that we've caught throughout the years that maybe y'all should continue to stock. You know, you know, I've got, I, I would love to see Melton Hill have a stocking program. It doesn't. You know, they put brood fish from the hatchery, and the hatchery's on, on Melton Hill. I mean, I'd just love to see it be part of the, uh, the, the, the stocking program. I'd love to see, you know, more restrictive limits because, and that's, that's, and I'm sure they know this, but it, I mean, this is kind of like one of the best areas in the country to grow these fish to massive sizes. You know, let's let's keep keep it going. And I think that's that's what I would, uh, you know, if that if I ever get anything done, you know, I just want to prove that yeah, there's giant fish here, and let's protect them and keep keep stocking them. And I think that's uh, that's what I'd love to see for my kids and grandkids and everybody else to enjoy. There you go, folks. He is an interesting character all around. It's always good to kind of get a hold of these guys, peel back the onion, so to speak, and get a little information into their background, who they are, where they come from. Uh, I, I, For me personally, I think it makes them more of a relatable person. Uh, you know a little more about them. You feel a little more connected to them. And uh, I think it just makes for an all-around more interesting podcast than listen to me jack my jaws uh, all the time. There will be sometimes I'll have to do that. I may get on some rants and do some of that stuff, but uh, on these, I really enjoy doing these. I enjoy talking to the people and finding out about them. Uh, and so I've got some more good ones. I'm going to tell you right now, the ones I got at the Catapalooza Fishing Expo uh, this past week, it's going to be some good ones. Uh, it's going to be some industry names that you know, and you're going to get some stuff out of them that you've never heard anywhere before. So I hope you tune in and listen. But for now... We'll just have to catch you out on the water.